Okay, welcome back to There Will Be Movies for Volume 3, almost. Not quite, though, because we have some admin to do first. Sweet, glorious admin. What a thing to come back to. My name is Matt Waters. I'm joined for these two special episodes by Ben Phillips. Ben, it's been a while. It has been a while. It's been seven months? Six months? Yeah. It's been a while. We have not spoken since then. I What's happened in your life? Like, uh, I got my first COVID jab on Thursday. Yeah. Uh, I've watched 235 movies since we last recorded together. Okay. A, a big number. Uh, I don't. I've complained about video games to you a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's about it, really. I've, I've watched like 125 episodes of Batman. Uh, <laughs> check out the Matt Signal and then to the RealWorld.com where I <laughs> review two episodes of Batman the Animated Series per week and Marvel Mondays, which. By the time you hear this, Loki will have started, and I'll be on to that. So that'll be fun. You've been productive with the stuff that you've done. I've just like watched movies and then yeah. done nothing with what the information is in my brain. I pivoted to written stuff, and that very much follows a very easy template that I can just plug in thoughts to. I got very jealous of Jerome Cusson's 102, but only 101 of them got reviewed of 102. See if you can spot the one that didn't get reviewed on the site. I got very jealous of that. So yeah, I, I pivoted to that hard. But done a couple of podcasts here and there with Mike Thomas. Should be one up on New Mutants by now. And I think there's one on Justice League coming soon. But forget that. The real podcast on this site, the one that matters the most obviously, is There Will Be Movies, in which we discuss 25 of our favourite movies from a given decade. Volume 1 was 2000 to 2009, and Volume 2 was 2010 to 2019. We will be starting on Volume 3, which is the 90s, in the next two weeks. But before we do that, we wanted to do, I guess to get our podcasting legs back under us, some addenda. Kind of, here's some stuff that we wish we'd included, but did not, either because, you know, we set these very strict rules at the start about, you know, no repeat directors, nothing that's been covered on the website before, no superheroes. So there's that. But then there's also just stuff we didn't get to in time. This year was too too crowded. There just weren't enough slots. This person hates this movie. You know, that kind of stuff. So we're not going to go into them all in the detail we would a regular episode. But we've brought five picks each that if there were no rules, we would have had these on the list. Or they're Maya Copas and we wish they were on the list instead of something that is there currently. So we are starting here with 2000-2009. I have five. Did you have five? I have five. We've spent much time discussing these. I think <laughs> I've been more annoying in terms of pulling stuff on and off. <laughs> eh, a little bit. I mean, I sat there being like, I need to watch this and this for like, I don't know, three months. And then I watched one of them three days ago. So that's good. But that's for next time. But we're going to start with 2000 to 2009. I alphabetized mine. I don't know if, if you want to do them in a specific order for you, but mine will be alphabetized. But you're going to go first. Because I've also alphabetized mine. Okay, well, that works out then. So, Benjamin, what is the first thing you have brought to the table? The first thing I brought to the table is A History of Violence by David Cronenberg, which is a movie I think until the, the last minute we were recording volume one was on the list it was yeah. like we're doing this we're doing this we're doing this and then immediately we're like no we're not doing hurt locker instead like hurt locker was i, I say a last minute edition because obviously it's quite a late movie in the decade but like it was originally zombie land then it went to history of violence and then it finally ended up being hurt locker so like it was very turmoily the first season of this but history of violence is really really fucking good obviously david cronenberg is kind of the king of horny and violent movies and a history of violence 
is kind of both of those. Some of the violence in this movie is absolutely horrifying because it's done in that kind of like realistic way where it's like it is heightened obviously because it's Cronenberg but like it's it's just this mundane setting where a hitman is trying to escape from his previous life and then basically stumbles upon some criminals who come into his bar and basically ends up back on the radar for people he's trying to escape from. It's all very John Wick mm-hmm. but done with a lot more like violence in the way, uh, the way that John Wick doesn't really get to. Got some incredibly like sexually charged and kind of controversial sex scenes between hit, uh, Viggo Mortensen and Maria Bello. Just fantastic supporting performances from William Hurt and Ed Harris. Like It's just one of those movies where you haven't seen it, had you? Uh, no. It's a really fascinating movie to discuss, especially in terms of the fact that the, the comic it's based on is kind of trash. So it's kind of taking this pulpy, not very good comic book and then turning it into something which is still pulpy in, in its kind of core ethos, but has that level of kind of elevation to it that only David Cronenberg can do. I've got many, many nice words to say about the movie. I rewatched it at the same time that we were recording Volume 1 and was like, oh, this is still really fucking good. Just a terrific score from Howard Shaw as well. And yeah, I think I'm done. That is all I can get out of myself. (laughs) That was written on the dock for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then as we were getting to the point where we were going to have to actually do it, it disappeared suddenly. I guess it was for Hurt Locker. I forgot that Zombieland was the original pick. Zombieland was originally on there. I think Zombieland was eventually... We were almost like, do we do Zombieland 1 and 2 as like a special... Ah, uh, yeah. And then I saw Zombieland 2 and was like, maybe we yeah, don't. Maybe we don't. Maybe we don't. But staying on the theme of Land starring Jesse Eisenberg, <laughs> my first pick is Adventureland from 2009, written and directed by Greg Matola. We omitted this because... Well, I was forced to omit this because it was the subject of the one year anniversary real world podcast special with Mike Thomas where we each just brought our favourite film and at times I have called this my favourite film and you know you get some raised eyebrows you get some sniggers when you say something like this is your favourite film but like at the root of it like shouldn't your favourite film be something that you have like a sentimental emotional attachment to rather than like something incredibly artsy because no this is not a high art film however it hits me deep in my cross section of interests it is a workplace comedy it is an 80s movie it is one of those slightly wanky drifty 20 something year old dude movies and there's a heavy emphasis on the soundtrack with the cure the replacements husker do crowded house lou reed david bowie in excess big star it goes on and on and on and on incredible soundtrack a collection of some of my favorite actors jesse eisenberg ryan reynolds bill hader Kristen Wiig, martin Starr. like how they got all these people and then in support you've even got like wendy malik and jack gilpin Paige howard margarita leviva I forget how to pronounce her name. Anyway, it's just this incredible collection of talent. It's hitting me right in all the things I'm interested in. My lock screen is Jesse Eisenberg and Kristen Stewart looking at each other and like the time on my phone appears directly in between them so it kind of looks like they're looking at the time and I will never ever change it. Um, (laughs) The main character, James, is a bit of a wanky white boy like fake deep guy but you know, that comes with the territory and I, I do like that he defends M to the end and is like calling everybody out on their double standards kind of thing because it's you know they're working at the shitty theme park he falls for the mysterious girl who is secretly having an affair with a married man because she has a troubled home life didn't expect to actually like James it all comes out everybody slut shames her 
and he defends her to the end and all that. And like, I think Kristen Stewart, it kind of weaponizes her aloofness, which was, you know, the big subject for this decade in terms of, is she a good actor? Because of Twilight and everything. And it sounds like, yes, she is a good actor. And I think this is some of the earlier evidence of it. I'm running out of time, but I think one of my favorite beats is the idea that Ryan Reynolds is serving as like a cautionary tale of James's future in this movie, where it's like, he is this womanizer who thinks he's like, hot shit and he tells all these stories about jamming with Lou Reed and then (laughs) that's my time James catches them in his lie towards the end and like they just share this knowing look it's like yeah you're full of shit he's like yeah I'm full of shit but off I go and yeah there you go the timer was was lovely thank you there we go we have a we have a timer going for this to make sure we don't go over this is truly to get our legs underneath us I did have a little stopwatch under me and I could see I was hitting it but thank you for also just slapping sound effects on that (laughs) right go on you go next I I, I like Adventureland obviously we covered super bad as well so we did get a little bit of a discussion in there and I will be bringing up Chris to it later on in yeah. the second episode but yeah so my second pick is 2000's In the Mood for Love by Wong Kar Wai starring Maggie Chung and Tony Leung which is probably I don't know like maybe the biggest omission that we have considering it is literally positioned as like one of the best movies of the 21st century from nearly every serious film critic straight up I thought it was late 90s so I never <laughs> mentioned it even once when we were discussing what should go on the list otherwise I would have it's, it's really fucking good it's probably one of the most like romantic movies yeah. of all time just in terms of like just the setting and like the entire movie the tension is will these two people ever kiss is like just the central tension of the entire movie it's basically about two people who are living next door to each other in apartments and they've discovered that their part both partners are cheating on each other with each other and so they start this kind of flirtatious almost quite relationship like through the hallways it's just lots of longing looks at each other and yeah it's just it's absolutely fantastic obviously Wong Kar Wai is well known for these kind of like woozy atmosphere filled movies like the colours in this movie are just absolutely stunning Christopher Doyle's cinematography is fantastic the music by Michael Glasso and Shigeru Bayasha is wonderful like so many things when I was looking at the list I was sort of like is there enough plot here to discuss because <laughs> obviously so much of it is mood and tone there's not much dialogue it isn't an acting tour de force in the way that you would find with some of these things but it is truly a completely stunning movie and it was just one of those things where I got to it and I was like is this going to be like a I mean I don't want to say it's like a Florida project or anything like that but one of those (laughs) movies that's kind of more like there isn't a plot it's just a series of almost vignettes as you Mm. go through that build up to build up to a conclusion but it's not necessarily something that you've got two hours of podcasting as we are now at this point up to but I just wanted to give it a shout out like it is so fundamentally one of the best movies of the 2000s I've watched a lot more Wong Kar Wai I've literally got the credit box that sat on my shelf now. We may winky winky be do it discussing some Wong Kar Wai later on this year. See if you can guess what we're doing since most of his movies from the 90s. But yeah, like <laughs> he's really fucking good, and this yeah. is potentially his his best movie. I mean, this will come up again in a few minutes. In my head, this was a like 1998-1999 movie. I just didn't even bring it up. I should also say I feel we got better at making the lists after the first volume of the podcast, which I don't want to say it was thrown together, but maybe not quite as far 
far-reaching. It was one of those things where we were more passionate about the 2010s list, and we just yeah. decided to do the 2000s, because we obviously had, like, when we were doing it, we did it in 2018, yeah. so we hadn't actually finished the decade of that. Yeah, point. ideally we should have started with 2010s and worked backwards, because we're now in this situation where it's forwards, backwards, backwards kind of thing. But, yeah, like, fully, I, I really love this movie as well. Uh, you would have gotten no resistance from me. It would have been really nice to have more foreign films on our list, which we did better at in the 2010s, but just complete brain fog, and I just let it go by, and it didn't get brought up, and didn't make it, but absolutely one of the greatest films ever made, for sure. Excellent. So what's your number two pick? Well, Benjamin, I have violated the no capes rule, and the repeat director's rule, and also just the rules of this by bringing two movies, Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. I bring them both because they are, to me, intrinsically so interwoven and interlinked. They are very much a 1A and a 1B for me when I think about Batman and I think we don't appreciate how rare it is to get somebody of his caliber working on a superhero movie his level of auteurism his command of large scale movies on a freaking Batman film I mean before he starts to descend into a borderline parody of himself almost but to have these sort of more artsy sensibilities and then tackle Batman and take on some of the greatest source material for Batman ever you know to, to, to essentially adapt year one and The Long Halloween, probably two of the three best Batman stories ever, and to just apply this incredible sense of atmosphere to to all three of them. Like, Dark Knight Rises is pretty good as well, but yeah. Gotham, it has this real tension to it at all times. The the soundtracks that uh, that go with them are insane, but yeah, just I feel simultaneously these movies have been talked about to death, and yet we still don't appreciate them enough, <laughs> because you know, fuck all the people that go on and on about chaos, and, <laughs> and all the themes and stuff like that. People that make Heath Ledger's Joker their entire personality. And yet... Heath Ledger's Joker is insane. Like, a towering performance up there with anything in the history of cinema. You've got Aaron Eckhart, incredibly underrated as Two-Face. So a lot of people, Dark Knight is obviously the better film. And I'm one of those weirdos that's like, ah, but Batman Begins. And it's just, for me, it's Christian Bale's work of making Bruce Wayne an incredibly interesting character. And I really like about that first movie how it presents this idea he just does not understand how Gotham works. And to weave in all those year one elements with the mob and him just trying to walk right up to Sal Moroni or maybe it was Falcone, I forget which one, but to try and walk up to him with a gun. And he's like, yeah, I could just kill you in front of judges. It doesn't matter. So that, for me, is why I think Batman Begins works so well. It's this incredible character study of Bruce, and then I feel Nolan kind of loses interest in Bruce in favour of the battle for Gotham's soul, the complex villains, all of that stuff, but potentially the highest art popcorn movies ever made. I don't have more to say. Everyone has heard everything they need to hear about these two movies. It's just, yeah, for me, it's like, I can't ignore how insanely influential they were to this decade and to everyone in cinema really yeah no they're, they're really fucking good movies uh, <laughs> like like if we the only reason we had the no capes rules because it was like everything on the website <laughs> is capes related like, well yeah we have a whole marvel podcast i've done every batman movie every x-men movie with mike we wanted to branch off into some let's do some things for adults but there are these couple where it's like but this one's really fucking good though. Well, that's, that's why this 90s episode is really intriguing because obviously as you move into the 2000s and 2010s mm-hmm. all of the blockbusters sort of are superheroes and like the ones that aren't probably aren't worth discussing in this kind of like critical depth like I don't know if we would have an hour and a half to say on like part of the Caribbean
and curse the Black Pearl. If we would, if we would do <laughs> Challenge it. accepted. <laughs> but obviously, as we move back into the 90s, you start getting into like, these are when auteurs are still doing big blockbuster entertainment and they're still getting the chance to get these weaponized, these huge, massive budgets. And so we're actually managing to like balance it a little bit more with like the critical acclaimed stuff and the, the big budget blockbuster stuff. So I'm very intrigued to see how this 90s series goes over. Yeah. All right, your turn. So my number three pick is a movie which I don't think I could have ever have seen before we got to this year because it only got re-released in the UK last year. I had a ticket ready to go see it in the cinemas for the re-release just before COVID happened and all the screens got cancelled. But obviously I was super excited because I am, of course, talking about Bong Joon-ho's Memories of Murder, which Mm. is his second feature which is probably his other masterpiece along with Parasite. Like uh, last year I made it a concerted effort to watch all of his movies after I saw Parasite and just this was the other one which I'm like, wow, this is genuinely incredible. Like I knew of it because Every Frame of Painting, the fantastic little YouTube series about directing and, and how you construct scenes and whatnot, did a great piece on how he constructed a scene set in a bar where basically you have these three characters interacting and like the camera's just stationary but people are coming in and out of the frame, they're popping in, they're telling stories, it's moving around, it's just generally fantastic. If you want to like get a feel for, for Bong Joon-ho's directing, I definitely would recommend it for him painting. It stars Song Kang-ho from Parasite and Kim Sang-kyung who are basically investigating a version of the very first serial killer ever confirmed in Korea. Mm. And so it's this very true-to-life picture of this kind of horrifying thing that happened between 1986 and 1991 in Korea. And so it was, I think it was a little bit of a, um, a phenomenon in Korea in terms of the fact that like everyone was obsessed with coming to see what exactly this was. And obviously it's got themes of Zodiac where, because at the point where the movie was made, they still had no idea who this person was. I think since then the, the killer has been found and confirmed. But when came out it was very much this like there is no resolution to this this serial killer is still out there and, and about and so mm. there's they're <laughs> dealing with the uncertainty and not, not to spoil the entire movie but the last shot is literally vis- revisiting the first shot of the movie and just and you kind of hear like one of the detectives is coming to visit the place where they found the first body and this kid goes like oh yeah someone else was here half an hour ago you just missed them and it's just that like who else would be obsessed with this this random spot where we found this woman mm. um, but it's got all of those fantastic things that Bong Joon-ho does so well it's it's got the slapstick, it's got the long takes, fantastic acting. Like Bong Joon-ho is one of those directors whose compositions are so superb and he's one of those people who uses the visual nature of films in ways that are so fascinating. And the fact that this is his second picture, especially after the fact that his first picture, Barking Dogs Never Bite, is kind of a, a little bit of a letdown, is, mm-hmm. is kind of incredible. But yeah, this is this is a masterpiece and I would have gladly covered this if I'd seen it. Of his sort of back catalogue I haven't seen, it's the one that's like at the top of my list to watch. I mean, it's obviously far more in my wheelhouse, you know, like murder mystery. It sounds really good. Really good. They've got a Bong Joon-ho box set out now, which is like all of his movies minus Okja, I think, which you can mm-hmm. pick up. Or they, for some reason, they just do a, a split DVD of like Memories of Murder and Barking Dogs Never Bite, which feels really weird because they're not similar at all. And Barking Dogs Never Bite is literally a movie about murdering and eating dogs. Mm-hmm. So fuck that one. Okay. Speaking of problematic, I guess, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang by Shane Black from 2005. Again, this was on the first of several real-world Christmas specials. I have gotten locked into a tradition of covering every Shane Black movie for Christmas with Mike. Another one I've, at times, called my favourite film ever. It's in my top five. And again, I'm a sucker for a pulpy detective noir story. I'm a sucker for narration. I'm a sucker for, like, overly quippy wordplay dialogue. And I just, I really love how subversive it is from trying to threaten a goon with Russian roulette and accidentally killing him on the first shot 
apart, pissing on a corpse out of surprise, getting his finger slammed off in a door, all this sort of stuff. Like, it, it just, it doesn't quite go how these things normally go. But then at the same time, everything loops back around and pays off in an almost too perfect way, and I, I like that as well. It's an incredible performance from Robert Downey Jr. that I think he was on the way back up, but to me this is the one that like really cemented him as like, oh, he's fucking back. And he basically just steps over from this character to a slightly cockier one, a more successful one to play Iron Man for a decade, and he's the highest paid guy in Hollywood, and he brings Shane Black in to do Iron Man 3 because he had such a good time on this. And also an incredible performance from Val Kilmer. Surprisingly, it did nothing for him. He's been in just straight to DVD bullshit for <laughs> since this movie somehow, but he's incredible as Gay Perry. Michelle Monahan is good. I would be remiss for not acknowledging how problematic it is in specifically there is a very incelly misogynistic vibe to it from the subtle things like criticisms of how LA girls behave to just outright slut shaming and like I think Shane Black is a misogynist unfortunately so you know I, I can't just hand wave that entirely but it doesn't completely ruin the rest of the movie for me it's just when those scenes come up I have to just kind of you know clear my throat look at my phone for a minute that kind of thing just pretend I do not see it <laughs> and get back to just dumb Harry the magician turned thief investigating a murder because he's a pretend detective I just love it to bits I could watch it infinitely it's one of those things where I wouldn't have contested this being on the list whatsoever it's just because you guys got locked into the Christmas special but it was like <laughs> a casualty because it would have been a great kind of like counterpoint in Bruges yeah which is problematic in very different ways <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it was just one of those things where like looking at us like man it would have been great to do kiss kiss bang bang especially considering like we are the the Shane Black stands on the website uh-huh. nice guys I don't love it as much but it was penciled and then and then uh, rubbed out for 2010 it's funny as I've gone through this nice guys I think was in 2016 I was like it's my number two movie of the year and as I've watched more and more 2016 movies it's it's falling down and down <laughs> not because it's bad but it's just because i i've kind of missed out a lot yeah. of the, the really great stuff of 2016 yeah in fact one of the movies that i'll be discussing next episode is 2016 movie so we'll get to that but for now we are taking a trip to 2008 which was i believe an incredibly stuffed year for us not quite as stuffed as 2007 yeah we already had two movies on the list and we just come out of a, a five movie stretch in 2007 so i'm of course talking about rachel getting married by jonathan demi it's a movie that so i did a whole run of all the jonathan demi movies early last year and he has this kind of this thing where his 80s comedies are absolutely fantastic like he does Murdered by the Mob something wild Swing Shift Melvin Howard just these great 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 kind of 80s comedies and then he pivots hard into Sons of the Lambs wins the last movie to have won all five of the big Academy Awards and does Philadelphia and kind of falls into this kind of more adult drama category and whilst Rachel getting married isn't exactly a a return to the comedies there is a lightness to it in a way that's surprising considering the movie is about Anne Hathaway playing a drug addict released from rehab to come to her sister's wedding and the entire weekend has the pall over it of the fact that she was a a large contributor to the death of her brother. This weird movie where Anne Hathaway is superb. I would argue that she probably should have won the Oscar for this, especially over Kate Winslet for The Reader. It's got this light touch, almost handheld feel where the wedding is filmed in this just incredibly close, intimate way as you see these people bonding. The actual wedding sequence at the end is just, just complete joy as everyone is dancing around having fun. Sebastian Stan is randomly 
there as a little <laughs> wedding guest. He doesn't say anything. It's it's just a fantastic tonal balancing act of how do you make something feel joyous and a celebration of life whilst also dealing with these incredibly dark topics. Like there is a scene in the movie where the family are literally playing around as they load the dishwasher, and it's literally like they're throwing plates around and seeing who can do it fast and who can do it more efficiently, and then they find the plate that belongs to their younger brother and the tonal shift in terms of like how the scene plays out and everyone kind of getting a little bit more withdrawn and introverted is so well done and it's a real shame that Jonathan Demi didn't get to make more stuff like this because he sadly died I mean a decade later but like he kind of moves into doing things like a master builder Ricky in the Flash and then does a lot of TV stuff but he is a fascinating director who I don't think is discussed enough in the realm of one of the great directors of all time I'm shaken to my core to learn it's Demi and not Dem. I've been calling him Jonathan Dem for years. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, Anne Hathaway, I don't understand why she isn't talked about more as an actress. Like, I, I feel... I, I don't know if it's Catwoman stands, and I think she was fucking good as Catwoman, <laughs> but I, I don't know. Like, I think it's, it's and the Oscars. She's and... That, yeah, she's that, that theatre kid who yeah. feels like she's trying too hard in terms of, like, she's very earnest and very open about it, and, like, the fact she cries when she wins the lame is Oscar, despite the fact that it was like one of the biggest layups of all time but it's just a case of like the Oscars will almost always give you an award but very rarely will you get the award for the movie that you're actually best in yeah, yeah, yeah. like Kate Winslet running for the reader and it's like there. look at these other Kate Winslet performances you could have given it to her Leo for the Revenant Leo yeah. for the Revenant Amy <laughs> Adams for whatever she inevitably wins for yeah one day one day and yeah. the thing is I've watched a lot of Amy Adams' movies and a lot of the stuff she's nominated for is bad mm. speaking of bad me Matt Waters bad forgot that Love and Basketball came out in the year 2000. In my head, again, 100%, this is a late 90s movie, we'll do it on volume 3, I'm so excited to talk about Love and Basketball with Ben. Nope, 2000, already had recorded it all, and we had some kind of soft stuff early on, like Training Day and Almost Famous, and I would ditch either of them for Love and Basketball by Gina Prince-Bythewood, who is kind of getting her flowers now with the old guard and and stuff like that, but as a teenager, I loved it because it's about basketball. As an adult, I really appreciate the feminine touch I mean obviously it's a feminine writer and director but all through this movie like you know overt stuff like Quincy getting an easier ride through life and a greater opportunity versus Monica's sort of grim career like there's a real disparity in the the quality of the gyms that they are playing basketball in she has to go overseas to play professionally because there is not yet a WNBA he goes straight to the NBA and flames out and all that but there's more subtle things like she is punished for behavior that is venerated in men she is an aggressive player she she plays with fire and passion and all that and she gets punished for it and she has this interesting relationship with her mother who is a much more traditional housewife feminine wants monica to conform and do the same you see that kind of thing a lot and it's not handled as elegantly as this is i don't think because this ends in a place of them having a mutual understanding where her mother resents her for not appreciating how much she gave up to give them this nice life but then monica counters with but it feels very cold and impersonal because you you don't acknowledge who i am and then she's the one that's like go get your man kind of thing and at the end it encourages her to start playing basketball again i'm a sucker for a gimmick as i think this podcast has made clear so dividing the film into four quarters they are children (laughs) teenagers young adults and then adults and then they go into overtime at the end huge sucker for that and for me the one-on-one they play at the end is as emotionally charged as filmmaking gets Omar Epps is just complete cold indifference to her and like getting more and more aggressive 
and arguably winning in quite a dirty way kind of thing. It's like, there's not a huge amount of dialogue in that scene, and yet it is so profoundly tense and emotional as they play this one-on-one for, like, leave your fiancé and be with me kind of thing, um, which is ridiculous, but hey. And yeah, like, for it to end with her playing professionally in the, in the foundation of the WNBA and stuff like that, and this read on the film that she is more skilled than him, but he had a physical advantage and stuff like that. And Yeah, I just think it's a really nicely made film. There are tons of shitty basketball movies out there there are tons of shitty black comedies but like this has got just that little something extra to it that elevates it above everything yeah I, I got to watch this last year because I did all of Gina Prince Brightford's movies and it's, it's easily her best that will be on the lights someone who I don't want to say she got put in movie jail but she definitely didn't get the opportunity <laughs> she wanted to do like she spent far too long working on that black and silver movie for Sony to do mm, black cat and, yeah. and silver sable which I kind of um, wish she got to finish it now almost yeah, exactly because she, she comes back and does the old God, and now she's got like she, Old God 2 is probably going to happen at some point, and she'll probably get to do. I think there's some big action movie that she's doing, but yeah, yeah I mean, it I'm felt like, like a flex like, no, 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 I could have done this. Like, yeah. don't get it twisted that because it didn't come out, I couldn't have done this. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. But Son of Lathan and Oma, Oma Epps are fantastic in it. I'm really excited to see what Son of Lathan does in Succession Season 3. Oh, is she in that? Cool. Yeah, she's been cast in that, so yeah, very excited to see that. But yeah, like, just a really good movie, and again, having watched it last year, I was like, no, that probably should have been on our list. My bad. <laughs> Forgot what it came out. We take more care these days. <laughs> part of the reason why we did this, uh, another part of the reason why we did this, is Synecdoche, New York, another oh. 2008 movie. And again, it was getting to that point where, like, I haven't seen this, I think, before the podcast, but I already knew that we had two Calvin movies and if we didn't already have Adaptation and Eternal Sunshine on the list I probably would have rush watched this just to make sure that it wasn't my thing and this is completely my bag this movie it's it's so fucking good it's weird, it's naughty, it's meta it's got an absolutely tremendous Philip Seymour Hoffman performance I genuinely don't think I could describe what this plot of this movie is (laughs) you've only got three minutes a theatre director finds his life is like kind of like falling apart he's getting increasingly sick so he decides to build a replica version of New York City inside a warehouse and then cast actors to just walk around and play themselves and then eventually he casts actors to play the people who are in the play and it just descends into this like bizarre meta commentary on everything uh, until more and more of the city is just being taken over by this play and he is recreating things that have actually happened to him in his life with these actors and there are people who are playing people are playing him directing the play directing another actor playing him mm-hmm. in this world and it's <laughs> it's a genuinely insane movie that is incredibly emotionally affecting as we were heading into the last stretch of the movie where he's kind of like he doesn't want to be the director anymore and he kind of takes over cleaning his ex-wife's apartment and then has a conversation with an actor who is possibly playing his mother uh, is I don't it, it's just it, it's bizarre it's impossible to sum up I genuinely don't know how the episode would have gone if we'd done it but watching it it was just kind of this revelatory experience where I was just like fuck this is Charlie Kaufman is one of the best directors in the world he's an insane person who I <laughs> completely understand why people wouldn't emotionally connect to his work but he's someone who obviously is on a wavelength with me I also loved his I'm Thinking of Ending Things on Netflix last year which is another one of those movies which is so hard to sum up but you are buoyed by just fantastic performances 
is. Yeah, like I mean, this we were sadly lacking in in Seymour Hoffman in that first mini series. Like we've only done two of his movies, really, haven't we? Yeah, we were almost famous. And Moneyball. And Moneyball, and we did um, we did Mission Impossible three for oh, Secret Agent Man. We did, but yeah, like this this is yeah. just a tremendous performance from him. I think I preferred the performance here than yeah. in Capote. But yeah, good yeah. movie. Annoyed at myself, but also again, we had two Charlie Kaufman movies. I mean, he didn't direct either of those. <laughs> so you could have gotten away with it. I I could have gotten away with it. For as long as I live, I will never forget the closing line of, like, die. And then he does. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> yeah, I watched it at, like, God, I don't know. It was on at, like, midnight, one in the morning or something like that. In the heady days of being unemployed and just staying up until 3am every night. And I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> Incredible is what it is. I think it was on a draft of the list at some point, but you hadn't seen it yet, and it was like, oh, let's just go with what we've seen. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I, I really like it. I, I don't know why I didn't push more for it. I guess because I hadn't seen it very recently, so I was like, eh, I want to get yeah, my stuff I, I did, on. I did the big push that Kaufman last year, where I watched all <laughs> of his movies, and I was like, oh, he's really good. Yes. And we're still, spoilers, not doing Being John Malkovich for the Monty series. series. <laughs> Nobody was more surprised than me. Let me close this out then. So I actually, before we established any of the rules, and we just listed our 20 movies each. I had three Jason Reitman movies. <laughs> I, I had Juno, I had Thank You For Smoking, I had Up In The Air. And Juno was just, it's just the more interesting pick, I think. But there is just something about Up In The Air that I just really, really, really enjoy. There's not much to it. Like, it's a man that flies a lot, and he loves to fly, and he loves to not be tied down, because he is such a fuckboy douchebag. <laughs> he gives a seminar on, like... What's in your backpack? Because things weigh you down, man. And he flies around the country firing people on behalf of companies that are too cowardly to do it. And also, sidebar, Americans, look at your hiring and firing processes. Get out if you can. It's insane. Horror stories about, like, if you get called into a meeting ten minutes before the end of the day on a Friday and your phone has been cut off already, you're fired. Like, some of the shit that happens. Anyway, along comes Peppy Anna Kendrick who wants to do this via teleconferencing because flying is a ridiculous waste of money and bad for the environment. And Jason Bateman is their boss and is like, right, you go with him, learn how he does it, we'll see what happens. And she starts to rub off on him, obviously, and he begins to reconsider and he, like, connects with his family. He has this casual relationship with Vera Famiga. There's something kind of absurd and funny and grim about them swapping their kind of travel schedules as they sort of, well, I'm in Chicago on this date, let's bang them. Like, and you know he finally he's like right I have something with her I'm gonna fly to Chicago and see her and then she's married with kids and she's like you knew what this was and it's quite refreshing to see it the genders reversed there kind of thing you know he finally gets what he wants he's he's flown a million miles or something like that and it's a cliche of you know he finally gets what he wants and it means nothing but it is really touching as this pilot asks him where he's from and he says here because his house has barely any furniture his fridge is empty he is not close with his family. All he does is fly around and fire people. And yeah, there are many levels in which, even describing it, it sounds like yet another douchey white guy film. But there's just a... Clooney is so charming, and like there is a sort of profound sadness on top of his like schmoozy, smirking, you-should-be-single-forever performance. And it ends on quite a bittersweet note as well. And as does this episode. <laughs> 
<laughs> I did try and push for it over Juno, but like Juno is the more sensible pick, shall we? Yeah, say. I mean, I, Jason Reitman's one of those fascinating directors where like he kind of falls off a cliff after Young Adult. <laughs> yeah, he does. Those first four movies are really good, and then like Labor Day and Men and Women and Children are bad. He tries to bring it back with Tully by reteaming with Diablo Cody. I actually really like Casual, the TV show he does where he directs an awful lot of the episodes. Mm. Ghostbusters Afterlife is going to be fascinating. Yes. Because at first it reads like, oh yeah, forget all these women, let's take it back to original Ghostbusters. And then you forget, here's the son of an original Ghostbuster. <laughs> so like, maybe it'll be good. I don't know. We'll, we'll find out. It does have my bae, Carrie Coon, in it. Hell yeah. But yeah, no, I just, I've always liked Up in the Air. But yeah. No, no, it, it, it's, it's an interesting movie. It's not one I've actually seen since that Oscar season where I would definitely watch it in the cinema or the rest of it. But yeah. I do think it was like, Juno is just one that stuck in my head more and i think that's why i i fought for for juno a bit harder because it's like juno's so i mean ellie page like what a, what a performance so stylish so quirky kind of change i don't well maybe it didn't change cinema but you know definitely a wave of movies imitating juno in a way that there aren't movies imitating up in the air i guess because up in the air is imitating most films ever made but you know. yeah <laughs> but it does it does have anna kendrick in a very early performance yeah she's like yeah. like in that point where she's like i don't really want to come back and do twilight 3 <laughs> I'm, I'm an oscar nominated actress now uh, anyway kind of a, a soft last one there for me but hey i got very screwed over by superheroes and no repeat movies and my own memory in this decade <laughs> so. and that's why again 90s super fascinating because it's kind of a clean slate apart from one very significant movie <laughs> <laughs> Yes, and you can listen to that in like two weeks' time because next week we will continue with our agenda as we look at stuff we missed from Volume 2, 2019. Then we will have our traditional Episode 0 and then we're on to the 90s. But till then, I have been Matt Waters. He has been Ben Phillips. Will there be movies? Do we do that for these kind of episodes? Uh, I mean, there'll be ten more movies next week at least. <laughs> Bye, everyone.